I want us to know that all of us need to care about each other. I know it sounds cliche, but really, at the end of the day, it is a human rights issue that we're all human. We have to figure this out. Welcome back to the Midwifery Wisdom Podcast. This week, Augustine Colebrook has a chance to talk with the inspirational Shafia Monroe. Shafia is a renowned midwife, doula trainer, motivational speaker, and cultural competency trainer. In this episode, she blesses us with so much beautiful wisdom. She shares how experiences she had as a child led her to a more holistic career and lifestyle in adulthood. And of course, the work she is doing now to create more equality for black midwives in the United States. Together, Augustine and Shafia dive into service-oriented work, how to support black students through their education and preceptor stages. And Shafia even shares some special advice for white midwives on how they can aid black, brown, and BIPOC midwives through their educational period. We are honored to feature Shafia, especially during Black History Month. We hope that her stories and experiences and passion will inspire you and drive you to assist in making the change that is so needed in this country and world. Without further ado, let's launch into the episode. Well, welcome back to the Midwifery Wisdom Podcast, and I'm extraordinarily honored and excited to welcome Shafia Monroe. Welcome, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. I'm also honored and uh, been looking forward to this evening. Yeah. Well, yeah. in case people don't know who you are, which would be ludicrous if they didn't know who you are, could you just explain a little bit about your history and what you do? Well, let's see. I want to say that um, I'm passionate about midwifery. I am a African-American woman uh, born in the North, but was raised in the South Alabama, so I claim it. And I mentioned that because my work comes from that space. My work comes from a space where captured Africans, many midwives and years were brought to the South, majority, you know, millions actually. And so the influence and the blood and the spirituality and the work and the and the belief system is is entrenched there. So my family's from Alabama, so I grew up a lot there. And just learned to um learn to love life, to ride horses, to Respect the ants, like don't kick the hand house where I live, like don't kick the hand to the house and watch them run around and you know, just be kind and loving. Watch my grandmother do things that we would call uh unusual. So when the horse bit me putting, you know, turpentine on my bike, which now is considered normal. Or when I asked the grandma, how'd you get that big scar, really long scar when she was felt young, she fell on a plow and she said that she they they I guess that her family packed it with spider webs and wrapped it in soaked in turpentine. It was a very neat scar. So I kind of come from that old-fashioned, hands-on kind of healing. And then later, in the North, in Massachusetts, learned um, at an early age, like maybe 16, 17, that there was something called infomortality. I'd never heard of that. It's like, I always say to people, like, who talks about infomortality at the, at the Thanksgiving table or the Hanukkah table or the Kwanzaa table? You don't. You never hear that term. Because my family was very progressive, I, 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 don't, I don't know, somehow I just wanted to find out more, like infant, I thought baby. So I learned that what it meant, and I was appalled that it meant babies in general were dying. I'm like, oh my God, what's going on? Then I learned on top of that, in Roxbury, that more black babies were dying 
you know, close to like Chicago, Mississippi, really high rates. That's like in 1970. So that was beginning of my political movement for wanting to see, you know, save babies. And then when I'm reading about it, I come across these, I call them angels, my sheroes, these black women who, you know, uh, walked at night through mud to get the births and had to deal with Jim Crow. And, you know, if you had a problem, they would, they would move in with you and keep the legs together and all kinds of salves to make that incision or that tear heal. And they, they included the dads and they took care of the elders. Like this, like all around people opened their, their, their meetings with the prayer and sang songs and like, they just knew the traditions. And so um, I was just totally taken in by that. So I have been emulating their life ever since of doing good to others, uh, teaching black history, looking at traditional midwifery from a public health uh, and research-based perspective. Have put out, have, have run two nonprofits, one in Boston, one in Oregon, both. One was around reducing mortality, increasing black midwives in Boston, doing childbirth classes for teenagers, it's all in the 80s, like really kind of unheard of. And then relocated to Oregon in 1991 and created the International Center for Artificial Childbearing, which was to not so much direct service, but more so to elevate black midwives in the United States and really around the world about what we've been doing. Kind of like we've been kind of like a forgotten group. The majority of midwives in the South were black. There were 5,000 black midwives in 1913 in Alabama and Georgia. Can you believe it? 5,000. And now you have like five midwives who are black in Mississippi. I think there's two in Alabama, maybe 20 in, in Georgia. So just totally eradicated. So International Center for the Shawbearing Group was to bring back, help organize black midwives, elevate their work, uh, create a platform that we could talk to the mainstream by integrating cultural competency, diversity, uh, having more um, representation by black midwives in hospitals and teaching institutions, helping black midwife students get through the system, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I did that for about uh, 16 years. In 2017, I stepped down and moved into my two for-profits, uh, Sheffield Consulting that does public speaking and does advocacy and policy and does writing. And so I am actually will have a book out in 2005 called The Mother and the Mother, Postpartum Traditions, Recipes and Healing. Uh, so we've got a publisher that'll be out. And then with the other company is the SMC Full Circle Dual Birth Companion Training. Been training dual since 2002. But what the unique part is that it's built on the legacy of those same women. It's built on the legacy of the 20th century African-American midwives. Like, so people say, why do you have a doula training based on a midwifery model? Well, for one, doulas should be able to work with midwives. They should understand what the midwifery model of care is so that we can collaborate. So we doulas can influence our clients to use midwifery services. And then the other part was that a lot of our doulas, 3%, go on to become midwives. And the other part about that, that we want the doula to have that full circle scope, which the black midwife had. She didn't just do birth or labor or postpartum. She, she did the whole thing and she did family. So that is why we call it full circle doula birth companion. She was also their friend. So that's why it's based on that legacy. So yeah, I have seven children, a bunch of grandchildren, grow herbs. <laughs> wow. Well, I've heard about your herb garden because my really good friend Penelope came and worked with you. Oh my God, Penelope is a medis texture a second ago. She's she my bestie. I love her. Yeah, yeah, she just came over and built this wonderful, like, uh, what do you call it? We have like an urban forest in my front yard. Literally, it's not a good, it's actually a forest. 
So yeah, it's beautiful. All the uh, Oregon natural thing. People like walk by and say, oh my God, that's like interesting. I said, yeah, have my own forest. <laughs> and in the summer, there's a little spot I kind of sneak in at the I'll read my book and tea, lay down, get the shade. That's so awesome. Well, Shafia, it's it's such a, a holistic venture that you have uh, been living your whole life. Um, and when we think of holism, right, it's like all the parts uh, matter, all the parts come together. It really was before its time. Uh, you pioneered much of your work and much of your advocacy and education before they were buzzwords, before they were a part of the public discourse. And certainly you had that early inspiration um, between both the horror that, that babies die and that more black babies die uh, and mm. that injustice, but also the midwifery knowledge. But like, what else is in you that caused this tremendous life of service? Well, very interesting. I wrote my memoirs to go with the book and the publisher took my memoirs out the book. So that's really fun. So mm. <laughs> this is another book. They didn't want it. So, so I rented it because of course I said in my memoirs, you know, we, we say because of, uh, there goes I because of you. Or we say, Who sh whose shoulders do I stand on? So, of course, my my family, my mother was political. My father was a rural Baptist uh, man who fled the South because of Jim Crow. And so he was very strong in his conviction things. My uncle was the first black man in Boston to run for mayor. So I come from a family where I was taught that if you see a problem, don't complain. Um, fix it. And then I have my spiritual uh, mentor. I have, you know, I, I think Harry Tubman often, I think what well, this young girl got, you know, knocked in the head by an adult and was actually in a coma for a year. And what's so interesting about this, Augustine, that she was in a coma for a year. And here's the thing, enslavement, no facilities whatsoever. How did they keep her alive for one year? They kept her alive for, and then she woke up. You know that story? Yeah, she woke no, up. Yeah, yeah. So she was hit in the head, had a seizure and was in a coma. She was uh, like, you know, maybe 12. Something happened. The plantation owner got angry and knocked her out with something. But she was a coma for one year. So just the fact that they could keep her alive, is, I find interesting. Like, what were they doing? What did they know? And so part of my inspiration is that we came from the mother of the world, Africa. We came here against our will knowing. And we kept that. They couldn't take that from us. So even though they took our language and they took our dance, they took our drums, they couldn't take that innate spiritual healing and whatever. And even though we're mixed with different tribes and they may, you couldn't speak language, they, they mixed up by choice. There's still that thread of a form of healing and belief that kept this young girl alive for her to wake up and then have a premonition. She was led by God to go back and forth multiple times, not just 10, like a lot, you know? So it's like, how can I get tired and give up when this person without any education or compass you know, freed all these people. So when I say, so what's in me, this this work of, uh, this service work, that's where it comes from. It comes from my family, just like being service orientated. And I think, you know, the, the human race, humanity, you know, we're midwives, it is about service. And I love when I read about the black midwives, they say that I'm waiting on her. They don't say that I'm gonna catch her baby or deliver her, or they say, I'm, I'm waiting on her. So when you wait on somebody, that's twofold. That's two folds of, being patient, you're waiting for something to happen, you're not pushing it. But also when I wait on you, I'm also serving you. I'm also being at your disposal. I'm being 
you know, you're at a certain level. I'm waiting on you. It's a humbling thing. So I love that type of uh, expression they use. I think of that as well when I train the doulas or the midwives I've trained that, you know, we're waiting on somebody who is at an elevated state. And, you know, even the book I'm writing, this is how we look at motherhood. In America, we're so anti-family. We really are. We have the highest incarceration rate of children and the highest rate of children on death row. I mean, we're killing kids. I think the youngest was, I read, he was so small, they had to put him on a stack of books, lecture children. This is like horror stories, right? But my, but my point is that the work that I do is really about, you know, helping humanity to heal. And I want to start with the mother because we don't honor the mother. We talk about postpartum depression and the mature mortality rate and maternal morbidity rate because the patriarchal system does not respect the female body still. And then we bought into it. So it's like you get pregnant. Oh, you're having a baby? Oh, why? You're having a second one? Oh, my God. Well, don't know about birth control pill. Or you hear the commercial. Oh, I'm pregnant. Oh, well, there goes your life. You'll never sleep again. Like all these all these untruths. I have seven children. I always slept. I always went to the bathroom. I was able yeah. to eat. I'm reading the like, you know, you can't eat without someone holding the baby. So you can eat like baby on the breast by like, killing it. So <laughs> no problem. When they got it's bigger, such a I good just, point you make. Like word medicine is so important. And it, yeah. it does craft an entire culture as concept of things. Like we make it true, right? So yeah. I'm hearing in in midwifery circles, I hear a lot like I'm waiting on a baby. But I don't oftentimes hear this, I'm waiting on a mother. And I love that right. distinction. I think that's a very powerful shift because the the in the waiting on a baby, they have the patience that midwives need, but they maybe still have that corporate um, for-profit uh, capitalistic idea that the woman is still a vessel. And right. I love that we can reclaim that when we use that language. Is it okay right. if we like share that far and wide and say, we need to wait on women, wait on the mother? Right. Okay? And then let's say that the black midwife finding that she, that she coined that. So I will. I, I will I say like that. to give people credit where it comes. Like I say, I didn't make up that terms. It's, it's in the literature when I read about black midwives, yeah. listen to me good or uh, why yeah. not me or, you know, only Logan mother wait. They use that term that we're waiting. We'll on put her. those in. We'll put the link to those uh, in the show notes because those are okay. really important reading. Yeah. 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 That's such an important, um, important thought. It's like a paradigm shift actually. And I think that's such powerful medicine when we get that word medicine, that's so, so simple and obvious, but so magical at the same time. Well, well, Shafia, I feel right. like you, you could be very tired and I don't want to project at all. And I don't know the experience of uh, being a black woman in America, but from what I do know of the exhaustion of the constant fight for, for equality, for just human care, I would imagine it's very exhausting. And, um, I just, I don't know quite where I'm going with this, but I, I'm inspired. I'm deeply inspired by your, um, your conviction, your perseverance. Um, and I also am in, what's the word I'm, I'm kind of bowled over or I'm reminded again of the stark difference between being white in America and being black in America. And I just wonder if you feel like 
um, it's getting better or it's getting worse in these last few years? Well, I say it's getting better. I always tell people when they get like, oh, this is it. Like, first of all, as my dad said, you better vote because too many people got listed so that you could vote. So I will always vote no matter who's running. Second, you know, I say I can say any place I want on the bus. Rose, you know, our whole movement did that. So, and now we have, uh, so yeah, we've come far in that sense. And yes, there's still a lot of, tons of just, uh, what you call it, inequities. But when I see a, a white cop get arrested for killing a black child for the first time in history, you know, the Black Lives Matter or whatever, or whatever caused it, that is a good sign because they originally came from the KKK. Literally, they're made for that. And so there was this, you, you could never arrest a white cop for killing a black person ever in history. It's never been done. This is the first time. And so that's huge to me. And the fact that, you know, people that we're having this conversation. I mean, before it's like we were just like, oh, you all are just hallucinating. You're ungrateful, whatever the term might have been. So I do see progress. Are we there yet? No, no, we're not there yet. But, you know, you can't go forward without looking back and seeing how many steps you've come. And I often believe in my faith to look back to see how far I've come. And I look ahead to see how far I have to go. But I have to recognize my my progress. Other than that, what's the point? You know, you have to see the hope. And we have some statistics, yes. Black women still are dying, you know, 6% for no cause other than just straight neglect and discrimination and maybe even racism, all that combination. But we're talking about it. We're getting more uh, midwives of color. We're getting white allies who are also on the field saying it's not okay. Uh, we've got different legislations that have passed. Some are still trying to be passed. So, yes, I do see hope. Hope, hope is important. Um, yeah, I think so. Let's, let's uh, focus in on midwifery specifically. Um, a lot of the institutions of midwifery have historically been uh, very racist. Yes. Um, and I'm wondering if you, we have a very large audience that listens that is, uh, is white America and I'm white midwives and his, and the majority of midwives since the 1950s have been white as a result of right. all of this discrimination and things that we chatted about. Do you have, I mean, I don't, I don't want you to labor for free. So, you know, share only what you're willing, but are you, do you have any advice or any um, suggestions for those of us who are in leadership positions and are white? What can we be doing that's better? What, what could we, what could we do that would increase the trajectory of this return of black midwifery in the United States? Well, one, I say, whatever you see one black midwife on your board or in your um, sphere, you know, triple it because one person can't create the change. So if you're really serious, like we're not going to hire O Shafia, we're going to hire Black Shafia, Black Mary, Black Bob, and Black Anthony and, and May all together to create the synergy because, you know, white people have a very strong dominant force of just growing up being like, being this my way. It's how I see the world only one way. And one person would be exhausted and they are exhausted and and, and it's, just, it's just too much. And so definitely increase the numbers, you know, be willing to really share the power. I said not one, but you know, we can create new positions. So we don't have the vice president. We could have a co-president, a co-vice president, a triple vice president. I and mean, you're in a place now we are already being innovating. You said, 
doing a whole nother type of model. So you're already, you know, about thinking outside the box and doing something different, you know? So I think definitely um, that's one thing that we have to do. We need, we need the numbers and we need to, um, you know, affirmative action. I think it should have stayed. I think we should have kept affirmative action. So there's any way that you can model that in white America, in your sphere, your small school, your big school, whatever. It's not about, it's not about, making favors about the fact that there's been injustice for over 400 years and you can't take people who are giving nothing, throw them out and say, you're free now and expect them to catch up when you were reading, writing all your life. And the fact that we're still here doing so well, hidden figures, got the white man to the moon and first heart, you know, this black history, most so many things we've done that we never get credit for and that nobody knows. Um, we, we we owe African-Americans, we really do. We're the only group not got reparations. So if you want to give reparations by opening up the door, giving several positions, giving, you know, adequate pay. Don't be on people's back minimizing and trying to make them be your way, but be willing to look at it, how they're doing and keep open mind because what happens, you get that one person and they, they wind up just burning out because not they can't do work, it's it's the socialization is, like you said, it's exhausting. Just people just constantly trying to not see you succeed and constantly... T- you can't take it. And so that, you know, I, I've always worked for a black organization, so I don't know about that. I mean, I, I work for black organizations, so I'm having a ball. Yeah. You know, I'm with women who respect yeah. me, who love me. And it's, it's so hard, hard hurting when I hear women say how hard their job is as a black midwife, how hard, is, how hard it is to do what you love if the people around you make it difficult. And so I just want to put that out there. Whatever you can do to not make that real, you know, and giving people a chance to, you just say, okay, what can we do? And then when the person says it, sometimes they get ostracized, they lose their job or it's just bad news. So then people can't be honest. Yeah, they can't be honest. Yeah, I, I can, that culture in organizations can just become so toxic. I can totally see that. Let's let's kind of narrow the focus really tightly to all of the student midwives right now. It's hard for all student midwives because the system is really flawed and the support mechanisms don't exist and the requirements to work without pay are massive. And like the whole system is really not so sustainable, right? It's (laughs) broken, right? Yeah. Yeah. But for student midwives, and we're talking really specifically in the community-based space, right? Right. Hospital-based midwives have more support and actually have better systems. But for right. community-based midwives, it's hard for all of them. True. But it's particularly hard for Black students, uh, Brown students, BIPOC students. It's particularly hard. And many of them only have the option to apprentice with white mentors. Right. Um, and I'm wondering if we could kind of address that dynamic in today's conversation because culturally matched education is just as vital as culturally matched care but it's literally not there it got driven out to the point that there aren't enough preceptors to move the students through so this dynamic has to be there and certainly there are quite a number of white preceptors who do identify as allies have done their work wading through the swamp of white privilege and understanding how racism was baked into their bones because of the United States. And like all, you know, like many of them have done that work. Right. But, but some are still in that process. 
And then there are some who aren't even aware. And I know you encounter this. I certainly encounter this of folks who aren't aren't aware of what right. white privilege is or that they even can walk with unearned privilege. And and yet black students are asked or required or have no other option but to apprentice with those folks. And I'm just wondering, what can we do collectively as a profession to make this experience better, to protect the vital passion and and just to protect these students because they right. they have to make it through right to right. see the kind of new profession that we want to see like they have to make it through so i don't know what let's brainstorm like what can we do maybe you have some answers already but I, i'm concerned with this a lot because i get phone calls and messages and consults all the time of black students who are really suffering right and i so, want to i want to support that yeah go ahead now i say one thing that i've heard as you've heard like the suffering the system that allows the apprenticeship model needs to um, supervise it. So we hear there's things happening with apprentices, uh, with, 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 with midwives then who are apprenticing, we need to be able, somehow be able to challenge. I know that I believe some midwives are actually charging now for apprenticeships. You know, you have to actually pay them. So yes, for, for sure, too. if you're paying, it's like any other job, there should be a system where the student is protected if there's something going on and not that being. So I think the bigger system needs to look at how this is working and put things in place. There needs to be some type of accountability, just like if you're a resident in the hospital and something happens, you just can't do what you want. Something happens. So I think we, I know there's a smaller number, but even though their community doesn't mean it should be any less uh, professional and fair and honest. That's, that's the first thing. Uh, we're already doing cultural competency. Like, you know, I, I teach, I, see, I left out Chef Female Consulting. We do provide cultural competency training for midwives in public health and even obstetricians who want to take it's a six hour training based on John Hopkins, you know, da 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 da. And so it's, it's a little awakening for some people. I think also we need to change the system. The requirement that it takes to be an apprentice should be changed for black midwives. A black midwife is, he says she can do it, let her do it. You know, I know there has to be, um, you can't do one birth, you know, and, and of course being a friend, but there has to be a way that we can adjust based on what's going on. So again, it's like thinking outside the box and being willing to to change things if we can legally, you know, and not just keep it, you know, keep the business as usual because that that's not working either. And then we have the black, Midwives, National Black Midwives Alliance, which is every uh, uh, a growth out of the ICTC with Jamar Amani and Haji. Um, they we're having a second, but first in-person conference. So you know, as many Black midwives students who can get time off from their preceptor to be there, to be around people who can support them, who understand them, where they can. That's what we did. I, you know, I put on the Black Midwives Conference for 17 years. Under ICTC, I don't know if you know that, but you know it was a national international conference. Black midwives came from everywhere. It was the same thing. Oh my God, this is amazing! You just need to have that that place that you just can just be yourself, and you know, yeah. and people talk to you who understand. Like, oh, that happened to me too. You're not you're not crazy. So just something like yeah. that, helping them get there, supporting them being yeah. there, supporting yeah. you know Jamara, the national black, you know, calling her and sending. Uh, yeah, you know, we still need, it's still, it's still an unequal pay. African-American women make less pay of any group in this country. So yeah. anything yeah. with that, yeah. 
Well, that is uh, coming up next month, uh, March 15th through the 17th in Virginia. Yes. And we'll we'll tag a, a link to that conference website under the post here. And certainly uh, we love Jamar Amani and she's taught a course for midwifery wisdom, which we'll also link below called the uh, Birth Justice Masterclass. And oh, uh, very, very important for white folks to, to access that information for sure. Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, Shafia, I would love to hear more about you and really what are you loving right now? What projects are you working on? What are you really excited about? I am excited about cooking African-American postpartum foods. And I have shifted from, uh, you know, I, lo I love the whole holistic, you know, prenatal, the I love all of it. But I think now because of just a shift for American as a whole, not understanding postpartum care and then you know black women having that issue of not maternal mortality but the maternal morbidity when i read about all this work and you know my years of research on black you know i'm also a research historian so just you know years of reading oral histories you know going combing through the scholarly reports talking to elders traveling around the country and the world there is a way that women are treated that makes them bounce back and so in a big part of it is food and so I really want to um, elevate the original African-American diet. So I'm just doing recipes, I'm cooking. I have a, a, a piece on Instagram called Black and White Cooking where I use, you know, chicken or coconut oil or palm oil and okra and just, and just cooking. Now, did you know that okra comes from Africa? And watermelon, watermelon comes from Africa and the guinea fowl yeah. and mint and holy basil and um, tamarind and coffee and castor oil. So I think, oh, wow, no wonder black men was used castor oil for first because it's something they knew, the castor bean. So, um, of course, coconut palm oil. So I'm just like mixing those foods with the with the Southern uh, tradition. So we talk about bone broth, and I laugh because, of course, my grandmother cooked the greens and the ham hock for like 19 hours. Back then <laughs> yeah. it was called, you know, back then we heard, oh, you all are killing your food, right? White Americans said, oh, you're overcooking your food. Let's all go raw. Now we're flipping back. To, oh, my God, let's cook this stuff for 15 hours and call it bone broth and sell it for $25 a, a, a ounce. So yeah. I'm just culture that we've already been doing this. And it was it was, it was was devalued. And unfortunately, black folk, we, we fell for it because we're not the majority. If everyone's saying that, oh, wrapping your stomach is wrong and, you know, cooking your green so long is like you're just unhealthy then I'm excited to go back and, and really discover the truth, which I have discovered, and teach those classes and get people back on board to get rid of the anemia, you know, the dehydration, uh, teaching uh, what I learned from the Black Midwives with fathers, very much a part of the work. It's not a feminist movement in our community. It's a, it's a, family, it's a family movement. And the father's role is very important, what he can do, and the little children. And this, again, having children, you know, everyone's different, but... I had such wonderful experience also with my children, I guess because it's the way our family functions. Everybody helped out, even the little children. Like, Mommy, you want water? Let me rub your shoulders. Um, let me hold the baby while you're taking that. It was just like, so I don't remember when I hear how much people are suffering where their children don't, I, well, you know, it's not his fault that I had another child. Well, it's not his fault, but it might be, but, that's, it was, but it's his blessing. Therefore, he has to participate in it. You know, it's not, it's not about... You know, or could I love, could I, I never thought, could I love my other one? People, I'm so afraid I'm having sex. I'm not sure I can love it. Like I, didn't have, I never thought that way. It's like, I don't know the baby. I would love it. So I just think 
I want to bring all that cultural part that is part of our culture that's been hidden for so many decades back to the forefront so that we all can benefit from it. You know, anybody, white, black, whoever wants to benefit from it. And like I said, take that shift, do our affirmations. I'm super, super excited about it. And I just helped the mother have a baby two years ago, her fourth baby. I was never a midwife, so I was her midwife. And I got there early. It wasn't quite labor. So I left. I came, and then she she called me on her face on the FaceTime, just tears coming down. I said, I'll be right there. So I, you know, zoomed over there. I'd already made the coconut collard green chicken curry, cayenne pepper soup for her. So she has the baby on the floor, the other midwife sitting there and waiting for the placenta to come out. You know, she propped up the baby. And then I tell the the doula to feed her. So she's giving her the soup. And at the same time, um, the other midwife is putting the concrete packs, you know, on the vaginal area. So when she was through, uh, later on, you know, she had a bath, et cetera. But she just said, you know, I, this is my, my fifth baby. I've never felt so strong before. So I said, I believe it's the food. And so I was just like, put a bright light. And I said, oh my God, it works. You know, <laughs> you, know if you, you know, in labor, 18 hours of no food, no water, you know, and then we wonder why the mother's exhausted. No wonder they had a hard time. It's like, I don't want to do this again because it's not normal to be starved. And then when you do have the baby, what they're given, you know, ice cold apple juice and maybe a baked potato and a steak and peas and like that's not our food. It's gonna be, you're gonna get a big wet goulash of all this nutrients that you can just like drink down. So I'm excited about the food and eating and cooking, mm. pairing, mm. mamas and families happy. That's so awesome. Yeah. It is such a foundational element and we've lost it so much in the United States, the standard American diet, right? The sad diet is just literal garbage. I like to call it edible, edible or non-edible food like substance. I mean, it's bad. It's bad. It's Cheetos. Like, you know, I know Cheetos, my God, the earth's depleted, you know, and now the food's depleted. And then we're not even, we don't even know how to make it so that we can make it, you know, a little bit sustainable. You know, even organic still has issues, but just a good diet. So I'm excited about that. And um, my next thing is really next year, my goal is to get into the high schools and go back to teaching teenagers. I had a high school program called Sister Care, and it was uh, middle school, actually. I couldn't get the teenagers. They were, had to work or they had a boyfriend, getting ready for um, a graduation. But we were able to get what we call an elective credit. If you join the group, home public schools would give that person an extra credit. And so that was our cool. incentive. But basically, it was a year-long program. And we basically kind of raised um, between midwifery and baby doulas. So they would double dutch. They learned how to cook from scratch. Um, we did menstrual beads. We just had these conversations. And so I see them years later. And some have children, full term, breastfed. One had a home birth. One became a nurse. One became a natural So it works. Just going in and just reaching out to Because young girls in general... But again, particularly young black girls, there's not a lot of programs for them. They're kind of just kind of trying to figure it out with all what's on the media. Uh, the suicide rate is high for all children. Um, it's increasing now. Before black folks, we did not commit suicide. Now we are. You know, that's something that, that wasn't part of our culture, but now it's becoming more common. So I really want to reach out next year as my goal when I get through with the book to go back and just um, reach out to the children, young people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, powerful. I've taught in, in high schools and colleges, like life cycle 101 or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever uh, they, they have these different stages of courses, whatever. 
And it is so powerful to connect with that younger generation who it's not even on their mind yet. So like if you held a class, they wouldn't come, but because the class is required, they're there. Right, 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 right. They're just like, they kind of shuttle into class like, oh, okay, whatever. And then you can just like, you can just kind of blow their minds. You know, you can sort of see these light bulbs connection and it's like, literally you change the direction of their lives when they get that information young enough that it like is impactful. Yeah. You know, and that's so important. I, I, I tried to understand why in school we can't teach in the, in the third grade. I remember them wanting me to sign the form for my child to have the class on, I think it was HIV. And like, I'm like, no, I didn't, I didn't allow it. But the point is that if I, if, if children can go to learn about HIV in the third grade, why can't we talk about breastfeeding and natural birth in the third grade? Why is that taboo? But we can, what we can bring in HIV prevention, and what else was it? Uh, don't do drugs. We can bring all this stuff into first and third grade, but we can't bring in breastfeeding. Like, why is breastfeeding still considered like a sex thing? I don't get it. You know, because mm-hmm. we wow. know that the younger you learn about something, the more you're going to form to do it. And to talk about breastfeeding because someone's already pregnant is too late. You know, we need to be getting yeah. information early to children, but they will not. They won't let us talk about that. You can talk about everything but that. Can you imagine if we told yeah. girls and boys that about breastfeeding and using a midwife and, you know, natural birth and this whole group people? You, you can you imagine how powerful that would be? You know, one generation. I bet we would shift. I, exactly. Like yeah, yeah, exactly. But yeah, I yeah. think they know that. And I think it's about economics and control. But if I know it, I know they know it. If we know this yeah, is going to make a exactly. difference. Right. It's not like they don't know because I know and you know. Everybody knows, like, talk to them early about these things and, and they'll do it. But they don't. Our breastfeeding rate in the United States is, is so sad compared to other advanced uh, European countries. Our mortality is higher. Our mature mortality is higher. And our breastfeeding rates are lower. And we have models that are working around the world. We just need to implement them. And one is early education. And it's not happening. So I'm only thinking that maybe it's a... Um, economic thing that this want they don't want to lose yeah. money so just don't don't educate people yeah 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 the, the the corporate interests are still i mean they're all the way into our schools right i mean you can see that exactly. by the fact that coca-cola has a vending machine inside of a school even though we have millions of levels of information saying that it's so damaging exactly yeah, well, yeah. Lunch is still equal to prison food you know <laughs> right oh, you're right I, ch- I mean and, and how do we, you know how do we get our children to think and even preconceptional help, where to get them as a client, you know, as a family. Yeah. And they've been, I'm teaching now actually about the importance. Again, I have four girls and I'm going to say with the top of your anemia, they were never anemic because I know that when you have your period, they eat collard greens all that week, you know, and they drank the pot liquor. So they're raised that way. So even to this day, they're not anemic, but most mothers yeah. don't know that it's not their fault. Their child's on their period. They're still eating their fries and their pancakes and ramen noodles and yeah. not eating any green vegetables and not eating liver um and so yeah. by the time we get them they're severely anemic and that's yeah. not that's okay. that's not good so preconception yeah, yeah. it starts your minds yeah, yeah. i want to yeah. do it all well, i want to do it all <laughs> want to do it all. me too friend me too we yeah. I, I heard this great quote a long time ago um our, our my bones are aching under the weight of all the lives i'm not living and I think I about that a lot because there's like so many, you know, we exactly can I, mm. can I do it all before I leave the world? I said, well, I'm not gonna worry about it. I'm just going to just 
I just took a, a Reiki class the other day. So I'm doing mm -hmm. my meditation and uh, part of this is say that today I will not worry. Today I'll work honestly. Uh, today I will help all living things. So the worry things like, you know what? Just do what you can do. You know, we all come here for a purpose. I live here for my purpose. My purpose is over. Some else will continue. No one's indispensable. You know? Yeah, yeah. That great, I think it's a Hafsa quote that is, um, you know, the, the worries of the world are not yours exclusively, nor are they for you to release. I don't have it quite yeah, right, yeah, but you know, right, 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 right. as well. Yeah, we can't have, we can't uh, attract uh, or address all the problems, but we can certainly work right where we are. And right. uh, Shafia, there is no better example of that than you. And it's just such an honor and, and just so grateful to get to to sit with you and to hear your wisdom. It's just such an honor. Where could people hear you next? Are you speaking? Are you traveling? What's what? How can people interact with you? Well, I am the keynote speaker for the National Black Midwives Alliance. Um, awesome. I'll also be speaking at the Black Women's uh, Black Women's Fund Symposium in uh, Massachusetts. And that's it. To be honest, I have pulled back because of, of the writing I'm doing. So normally, you know, I'm a public speaker. So people wanted me to speak for them. Um, I do do webinars. I'm doing the practicing African American postpartum care webinar March seventh online. So a lot of things we talked about will be more in depth for the six hours of in person training. I'm doing the doula awesome. trainings, and, and as, as we mentioned about um, just to say what I feel like my legacy is, is that I'm I'm creating um, or I'm supporting nurturing new leadership, and so you know the doula thing. For me, it's not so much about, I like what they do, but for me, it's more of a political move because my doula training is about African-centered excellence and culture and history and leadership. The birth part's going to come. It's not about reducing. because So I'm, I've already trained like 5,000 doulas since 2002. So 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 already there's people out there who are already doing the work. They're, just, they're doing it their way, but they got the foundation that I gave them. So for that, I'm very proud. I'll continue doing that as long as I can. I'm also now um, training the trainers. So as I pull back and move into postpartum nutrition, I still want the work of the doula piece to continue under my uh, tutelage of built on the 20th century African-American midwife. I want that to continue. So I have other people being trained now as so they continue. But if they go to chefpmonroe.com, I have a little calendar there on events. They can also look and see where I'm at and what I'm doing if they're interested. You know, they can always, it says a contact me. So, um, yeah, but I just want to say before I go that this is a, a worldwide problem. The injustices are happening all over the world, whether it's, you know, Palestine and Israel or North Sudan and Southern Sudan or Chicago, East Side or Ireland and the English. You know, at the end of the day, for me, it's, it's good and bad. And yes, I'm going to promote Black excellence and Black life. Because it, it's obviously not fair, but I want to know that all of us need to care about each other. I know it sounds cliche, but really... At the end of the day, it is a human rights issue that we're all human. We have to figure this out. We have to figure this out for the sake of our children, for the future. No one, no one likes to see people being killed anywhere in the world. That's just something wrong with you. Nobody wants to see babies dying and women not going home or men being shot down. If you do, we're going to give you some type of seance and kind of work with you on that. But I think the majority of people really want peace. And so I just pray that we can find in our hearts, you know, a way to to be the best that we can be, to be tolerant, to learn, to be humble, to ask questions and don't be afraid of the answer, you know, just take it up and and just say, hey, that's not what I meant. That's not what I feel. As we tell people in my class, 
the I statement. I thought you meant that. <laughs> and I'm sorry that you did. How about we go to London? I'll pay for it. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so that's, that's my message. It's been a total honor. Thank you, Shabam. All right, peace and blessings. Thank you, friend.